0: Hello everyone, my name is Matthias, I am a master's student in biomedical engineering. My friend and co-host of this podcast is Philippe Carle, he is a master's student in biochemistry. You are listening to Orders of Magnitude, the science podcast in which we explore topics at all scales, going from the tiny creatine molecule all the way to the largest fat cells in the body. In today's episode we have an interview with Dr. Lawrence Kazak, he is an assistant professor at Medill University. He got his PhD at Cambridge and his postdoc at Harvard. And now at McGill, he and his team study energy metabolism, more importantly, the control of mitochondrial energetics, let's put it this way. We had the chance to talk about the different types of fat cells in the body, about some uncoupling mechanisms such as you, uh, uncoupling protein one. And we also talked about the creatine cycle and how it's used by brown fat cells to generate heat. At the end, we talked about how these fat cells may be involved in cancer development and a tiny little bit about how creatine is used or involved in sports medicine nowadays. So I hope you guys have a good time with this interview and enjoy. All right, so right before we jump into today's episode, Phil and I, we want to explain you guys a couple of concepts right before you go into the interview. Because both Phil and I, we have a degree in biochemistry, so we didn't have a lot of trouble understanding a lot of the terms that Dr. Kazak used during the conversation. But we, we realized that some of our audience may not be as used to a lot of the things that we talked about during today's conversation. So before we go into that, I wanted to give you guys the tools so that you guys can follow the conversation well and extract all of the information that you find useful for you and that you're interested on. First, we think it's important to know the difference between fat molecules and fat cells. Usually, in the everyday world, we are talking about fat in terms of nutrition. And in nutrition, fat refers to molecules. Molecules that are long chains of carbon with some hydrogens coming out of them, and these molecules can store energy. This is what we call fat when we're talking about nutrition. But when we're talking about the human body, when we say fat in the human body, we are talking about fat cells. These are cells that have the ability to store a lot of those fat molecules. Another term for fat that Dr. Kazak uses very often in today's episode is adipocytes. Adipocytes is just a synonym for fat cells. And so in today's episode most of the time when we say fat or when we say adipocytes we are only talking about fat cells and not the molecules that you would find for example in your avocado when you're eating it. Now these fat molecules inside of the fat cells they can be used to generate energy by something that we call a mitochondria. The mitochondria how it works is it works very much like a hydroelectric den. So in hydroelectrics, usually you have a huge wall that is separating one side with a lot of water and one side with not so much water. And the water flows from one side to the other by passing through a turbine. And as it passes through the turbine, the turbine rotates and generates energy. Now, it's very important that the water passes through the turbine for energy to be generated. And if the water was not passing through the turbine, but was still able to go from one side with a lot of water to the other, then we would lose a lot of the energy that we stored by accumulating all of the water on one side of the wall. Mitochondria, they work very much the same way. So they have one, they have some sort of wall, and on one side of the wall, there is a lot of protons. Instead of water, we have protons in the mitochondria. And on the other side of the wall, you have not so many protons. And so the protons, they can go from one side of the wall to the other by passing through a turbine, a protein that looks like a turbine and that generates energy during the process. And the same way as if water doesn't go through the turbine, if the protons don't go through the turbine, energy is not produced by the cell. So imagine you open a hole in the wall and allowed water or the protons to go through the wall without going through the turbine, you are basically wasting energy. You are losing some of the energy that could be produced. And we talk about mechanisms inside of the cell that do that. They prevent protons or they change the pathway of protons, allowing them to flow through the wall without going through the turbine and so spending energy or wasting energy if you want. The energy inside of the cells come in the form of what we call ATP. ATP is a molecule that serves as energy currency inside of the cell. And so this energy currency, ATP, can be either used or stored. But when it's used, oftentimes it is used for useful things like um, useful processes, Uh, inside of the cells, such as transport of other molecules, things like that. But sometimes, some cells have the ability to simply waste the currency. They take the ATP, they release the energy of the ATP, but nothing very useful is done with it. They are simply using the energy for the sake of it. The thing about using energy in the cells is that it produces heat. And so these mechanisms that somewhat waste the energy of the cell, they're actually being used to generate heat. And we talk about these different mechanisms as well and how some very specific types of cells in the body can do that just to generate heat. So these are the couple of things that we want you guys to understand before the interview. In the interview we go into all of these things into much more detail, but here is simply speaking, there are fat molecules and fat cells the fat cells, we call them adipocytes. The fat molecules can be used by the mitochondria to generate energy through a process very similar to hydroelectric hydroelectric dens. And this energy comes in the form of ATP, and it can be used or wasted through different mechanisms of the cell. Good. So this is a very... Uh, Very quick summary, trying to make things as simple as we can so that you understand all of the things that we will be talking about during the interview. We hope you guys have a good time during this interview and we hope um, you have the chance to understand everything that is being said, of course. Now, if you still don't get it, if it's still uh, too, uh, too difficult to understand, please, please, please let us know. Phil and I would love to have some feedback on today's episode. We would love to know how you are enjoying these different episodes, if it's too hard to understand or not. We want to tailor this podcast and the content that we make so that everyone can understand the science that we are trying to explain. So with all of this being said, all of this explained, we hope that you guys have all of the tools to understand the interview and that you have a good time. Let's jump right into it. Dr. Kazak, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for coming.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Well, why don't we start by talking about, about you? Who are you? What do you do? Your life?
1: Sure. Um, when I was in... Uh, I can start at high school. I uh, <clears throat> was uh, really heavily into fine arts. And I actually went to art school in Vancouver. Nice. I uh, moved out to Vancouver. I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, Moved out to Vancouver, went to art school for a year, uh, dropped out, and uh, started studying a martial art called capoeira, which is a Brazilian martial Uh, art. Oh, I'm from Brazil. Oh, you are? (laughs) I'm from Brazil, yeah, so I know capoeira very well. (laughs) Oh, okay, that's, yeah, so I I did that uh, very heavily for about 10 years Mm -hmm. of my life, and uh, thought that that's what I was going to do. Nice. uh, Until my mid-20s, when I decided that uh, I wanted to go back back to school, and So I started a master's degree at York University in Canada in exercise physiology. I thought that was a nice link with capoeira. For sure. Uh, I started studying uh, muscle physiology in my master's, but then quickly realized that the lab that I was in uh, was more characteristic and they weren't really understanding molecular mechanisms. And I Mm -hmm. soon realized that I had to move on if I was really going to try to understand any kind of physiological process. So. I went to Cambridge University, where I studied, <coughs> where I did my PhD in uh, mitochondrial DNA replication. So a lot of genetics and uh, DNA work and mitochondrial work as well. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a link between exercise and mitochondria. And I went to more molecular mechanisms in, in my PhD. And uh, in 2013, I moved to Boston uh, to start a postdoc uh, at Harvard with uh, Dr. Bruce Spiegelman. And there we were studying mitochondria as well, but in the context of as which I continue to work on today, but more of the bioenergetics aspect. Um, and yeah, that's what my lab works on today. So a little bit of a zigzag. It wasn't a through line. Uh, I didn't know in high school what I wanted to do. Yeah. So uh, I am a little bit earlier. Uh, sorry, I'm a bit late to the, uh, to the game. Uh, so a lot of, uh, I have to work a lot harder, I think. but I can, I can outwork people. I'm not necessarily smarter, but I think I can outwork <laughs> people, so
0: that is that is really cool i find uh it shows uh how there's no there's no specific path actually a lot of people if they're in science they think that ah oh, you gotta uh you know do your science classes in high school and then you have to go to a i don't know a health science uh, bachelor's to then do your phd and then go for your postdoc and everything like one after the other but it's nice to have a, a little different pathway uh, yeah example in front of us right? yeah
1: that's that's right i think it uh science education is extremely important. I think I, I can track back the, you know, the day when I, decide, when I thought that science wasn't for me. And it was, I loved chemistry in high school. And I remember in grade 11, there were some concepts that were difficult for me to understand. And the teacher I had was just not that supportive, but the fine arts teacher was really supportive. So it was really that you know, if somebody was there to tell me, like, you could do this, you know, uh, maybe I would have been on a different path. But yeah, absolutely. You don't need a, it. doesn't have to be a linear path.
2: Yeah. Reason. Every time I see students who struggle with math, struggle with science, I keep pondering, is it really because these students are less apt or because the teaching is uh, not acclimated to their learning style or something like that? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, exactly.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, so you, you mentioned that now you're studying uh, the molecular mechanisms of fat. In fact, yeah. metabolism. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we talk mm-hmm. about fat, the first thing that comes into people's minds is obesity, mm-hmm. right? Which is uh, we have we have a uh, an epidemic of obesity today in North America, especially in the states. Um, so I think it's a very relevant subject. You know, can can you talk a little bit about obesity and how is it a problem to people's health
3: in general?
1: Yeah, I mean. <clears throat> Obesity per se is not is not problematic. Uh, you have fat cells, white fat cells in your body that store excess energy as lipid, and that's a good thing. Um, you know, there are there are individuals that are born without able to able to um, uh, accumulate fat in their adipocytes and they have like lipodystrophy for example, and those people are meta you know have metabolic disease as well. So fat is not necessarily a bad thing. It's when the fat cells become overwhelmed with the amount mm-hmm. of lipid that they have and those lipids will end up uh, they, you, and you, your body basically can't store those lipids safely in an adipocyte in a fat cell and so they end up spilling over into other organs and tissues it can cause inflammation and that can drive mm-hmm. a whole s- <laughs> sorts of uh, diseases like insulin resistance and and then complications uh, down the line like cardiovascular disease and diabetes and, and even now uh, second to just s- smoking, uh, obesity is a leading cause of cancer.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So for people who are not from a biochemistry background, mm. um, I think one concept that is a bit harder to understand is, you know, you eat your avocado, you eat uh, fat in your meat, and then the, the fat is only small molecules, right? And then these small fat molecules get stored inside of fat cells, right? Which can contain how many billions of fat molecules, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if
0: you're not uh, if you're not uh, uh, used to these terms, people often will have a hard time distinguishing between the fat when we talk about fat mm. in the human body. We're often talking about fat tissue. Yes. So fat cells. Yes. But when we talk about fat in food, fat in in avocado, as Phil mentioned, that's we're not talking about fat cells. We're talking no. about
1: molecules. That's right. Okay. Yeah, you're mainly talking about different types of what are called fatty acids. Mm-hmm. Um, these are, you know molecules like you guys said Uh, but in our fat cells the fatty acids that we eat uh, are not stored as fatty acids Mm -hmm. they're stored as what are called lipid droplets and these Mm are uh it's a another molecule called glycerol will combine with these with three fatty acids and that makes a triglyceride some people may have heard of triglycerides Mm -hmm. the tri comes from the fact that there are three fatty acids bound to a glycerol uh, molecule And these form basically oil in our cells and Mm -hmm. fat cells are, you know, the fat cells in our body uh, are very good at taking up the fatty acids, small molecules from the food and storing them as these triglycerides, uh, which we call lipid
2: droplets. Mm -hmm. And the moment in which it creates pathology is when the triglycerides or the fat molecules cannot be stored safely in the fat cells in which they cannot cause too much problem. And they're just free floating in your blood, or organs—they could be, or... be free-floating in the blood, but usually the liver will uh, take it,
1: take them up, and then you can get fatty liver disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fat has to go somewhere. I mean, you could poop it out, but <clears throat> normally, if it's if it's overburdensome, then other tissues will end up storing it mm-hmm. as well, not just the fat cells. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Uh, so uh, since we're talking now about fat cells mm-hmm. and not the molecules. Are there different types of fat cells in their human body or are they all the
1: same? No. They're, so they're, broadly speaking, um, there's white adipocytes, white fat cells. That's what uh, most people think of when they think of fat. Uh, but there are, there's another type called brown adipocytes, brown fat. And they uh, consume energy. They don't store it. And of course, I'm oversimplifying. There are also beige adipocytes, which are brown-like adipocytes that are actually molecularly distinct from brown adipocytes. They're not just brown adipocytes that are found in <clears throat> white fat depots. They're actually a different cell type, and <clears throat> and that's basically the the most simplest way to put it. But there are actually additional adipocyte subtypes that people are have, d- have uh, found in recent years different types of beige adipocytes that come from different precursor cells. And a precursor it's, cells is, is a cell that's not a fat cell that differentiates towards being a fat cell. Mm-hmm. So it starts off as a progenitor cell, something like a stem cell. Mm-hmm. People might know what a stem cell is. And they can differentiate into a fat cell, just like a stem cell can differentiate into a heart cell or a liver cell. There are different... Paths of differentiation from these stem cells that can make a whole variety of different types of adipocytes. And we're just trying, we're just figuring those out now. But broadly speaking, you could think of it as white fat storing energy and then thermogenic fat, brown fat, dissipating energy. Mm. Okay, so it's
0: either (coughs) we either store the energy uh, in the white cells, Mm -hmm. I imagine in the form of what we were talking about, the triglycerides. Or we can burn the energy with the brown cells. Uh, Say, for example, uh, when someone that has a lot of fat accumulated, they start exercising. When we say they're burning the fat, is that because the white cells are becoming brown cells? How how
2: does that... No,
1: (laughs) yeah, so... Okay, so now we're getting a little deeper. So the white adipocytes, they don't only store energy, they also release it in times of need. Mm -hmm. So if you're feeding, if you're eating food... Uh, you're in the rested state you're sitting down you're eating a meal the energy that you're eating the fatty acids that you're eating even the glucose the glucose can come in into the fat cells into white fat cells and actually the sugar the glucose can be converted into fat as well within mm-hmm. the fat cells and the fatty acids the small molecules that you're eating also will be converted to fat okay that's in the when you're eating. Mm-hmm. If you don't eat for a while, maybe during sleep or you haven't had a meal, you're fasting or exercising, like you just said, your white adipocytes that have have all this excess storage of energy, they'll release the fatty acids for other tissues in the body to use mm. to generate energy. So the white adipocytes are really in tune to hormonal signals. Uh, in the fed state, when you're feeding, they'll store energy and in the fasted or exercise state in when you have an energy, uh, when you need to generate energy, they'll release the fat, uh, fatty acids from the fat cells as well. Uh,
2: they're responsive to the body's needs, right? Exactly. And they're strictly, if I understand correctly, storage, right? They uptake the fat and they make droplets of fat and they keep it when we uh, when we need to store it. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we need to have more energy, they don't have, do any active metabolism. They just give the fat to the other cell to release yeah. it back. Yeah,
1: I don't want to say, I, I wouldn't want to, In biology, you never want to say it's 100% (laughs) or no. They probably have a little bit of metabolic activity, but for example, compared to a muscle cell, I mean, very low. Compared to a brown fat cell, very low metabolic activity. They're really, I guess, altruistic in that sense, right? They're giving energy to other cell types and then storing it safely for the body.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so when we say that we are burning fat, it's really just the white type of fat giving the lipids to the the other types of cells. That's right. And when you say that brown fat uses energy or burns mm-hmm. energy, it's a completely different mechanism than uh, exercising. Uh,
1: no, no. I mean, well, yes and no. So, okay. Um, if a brown adipocyte is using, let's say, the released fatty acids from a white fat cell. So a white mm-hmm. fat cell releases fatty acids into the blood. They go through the blood. If you're exercising, your muscle is going to use those fatty acids right. to generate energy. Uh, A brown adipocyte, if it sees those fatty acids in the blood, will also use it Mm. to generate energy. But the brown adipocytes are unique uh, because they have, uh, I don't know if we're going to get into this now, but they have a protein called uncoupling protein Mm -hmm. 1, Mm -hmm. which essentially short-circuits the production of an energy molecule called ATP. So if you think of uh, water going through a pipe right? And you're trying to fill up your bathtub, for example. Okay. So you're trying to fill up your bathtub. Uh, the water is the fatty acids that are coming out from the fat cells. You're filling up your bathtub and then somebody just comes in and starts to punch holes in the bathtub. That's what UCP-1 is. So you're going to need a, a lot more water to, to flow in order to fill that bathtub up because it has a bunch of holes in it. And that's mm-hmm. essentially what UCP-1 does. And because UCP-1 is essentially punching holes in this bathtub, you need a lot more energy and in, in, uh, in the body, you need a lot more fatty acids to be burned in order to, uh, it'll increase the amount of fatty acids that are being burned.
2: Okay, in this analogy, for example, the faucet would be the, the water would be uh, the energy, right? Yep. And the faucet would be the fatty acids. And we need to pump more fatty acids <clears throat> to become, uh, to, to fill up the bathtub. That's right, right? That's I right. see.
0: yeah. I right. see, I see.
2: So then it's,
0: uh, I'm just trying to understand why we call the brown uh, adipose tissue, the brown fat tissue. Why do we call it a fat, fatty tissue?
1: Because it, it, it does store lipid. It, it's, it stores fat. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't store as much fat. So a white adipocyte will basically store one large oil droplet. Brown adipocytes will store a lot of little uh, fat droplets. So it, it can use its own energy as well. So it undergoes the same process of, of accumulating lipid. And releasing it as well. It just has it has these machine these furnaces called mitochondria in them that can also burn that released energy. And that energy, the fatty acids, can come from its own stores, or it can come from the white adipocytes as well. It doesn't it doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Where, you know as long as the fatty acids are in the brown adipocyte, it's gonna it's gonna essentially burn uh, burn them. Yeah, and and the reason why it's called brown adipose tissue is because it has it's basically a bag of mitochondria. Uh, and mitochondria uh, have electron transport chain proteins, which have cytochromes. These are these are small, what are called redox centers. So it's they allow electrons uh, to flow from substrate. So okay, when a fatty acid comes into the cell, you have to essentially strip the electrons off. If you're going to basically combust mm-hmm. that fatty acid and burn it to carbon dioxide, you have to extract the electrons from it uh, and slowly break it down. And those electrons power, they generate the energy to drive the processes of energy expenditure um, of brown fat function. So how do those electrons get transferred in the mitochondria? They get transferred through these proteins which have redox centers, which have cytochromes and iron. And that those cytochromes and that iron, those elements give the brown adipocytes their brown color
3: mm-hmm. because
1: so it's really the fact that they have lots of mitochondria that makes it it is actually brown if
2: you take a look at brown fat it actually by my mm-hmm. naked eye it's brown mm-hmm. it's a mm-hmm. little known fact but it's crazy to think about all the energy we have comes from electrons that are in our fat that is in our uh, that are in our uh, sugar and all that stuff and they go into our cells and then they get to the mitochondria and these electrons get harvested by, like you said, iron wires, right? Small molecular iron wires. Yeah. And these iron wires are what gives the red color to those fat cells. That's right.
1: Yeah, it's actually it's a little bit it it's not entirely true that the energy is coming from the electrons. The energy is coming from the the bonds that are that are attached to one another, like the mm-hmm. carbons and the hydrogens. So there's energy stored you know, in this table here that we have this, these microphones on, like my, the chair, the world, right? Mass equals energy, right? So fatty acids have a certain mass. They have energy stored. And you have to basically combust that. You, you strip off the carbons. But when you're doing that, you strip off electrons. What the electrons do is they get transferred through the electron transport chain through this wire And that generates potential energy across the mitochondria called the proton motive force, the electrochemical gradient. And that's really what drives um, the synthesis of the energy currency in the cell, ATP.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so
1: uh, let me just try and summarize to make
0: sure that I understood everything that we mentioned now. We have then brown fat Mm -hmm. that can store uh, fat, um, fat molecules. And it can also use it uh, in excess because it has a lot of mitochondria, which is the powerhouse of the cell. It uh, it produces energy from things like like uh, lipids, mm-hmm. fatty molecules. And it the brown fat has this special characteristic, different from other other cells, that it has this one protein mm-hmm. that can that demands the cell to make more energy. The protein being uh, Uncoupling protein
1: 1, right? And so what it does is it pokes holes in the mitochondria. Is that right? It, it doesn't poke holes. I mean, that's the analogy. What it does, it's, it's actually a transporter. So it sits... Okay, so if you think about the wire, there's a wire and the... That's the mitochondrial membrane. Mm-hmm. And anytime you have a concentration gradient of ions, in this sense, it will be protons. Yeah or metabolites, that's a potential source of energy. You have a disequilibrium, it's called. Mm -hmm. And that disequilibrium, if it's far enough and removed from equilibrium, it can be harnessed by the cell to to promote energy production. So what UCP-1 does is that chemical disequilibrium, the protons that are high- on one side of the membrane of the mitochondria, and low on the other side, right? That's potential energy. What UCP one does is it allows those protons to just go through it, mm-hmm. to from the high concentration to the low concentration, mm-hmm. and essentially re-equilibrates that disequilibrium. And when and and the mitochondria that is sensed, that disequilibrium, the dissipation of the disequilibrium is sensed the mitochondria want to maintain that disequilibrium and so they say okay let's burn more let's let's burn more fatty acids let's try to maintain that disequilibrium if ucp1 is active and as it tries to maintain that disequilibrium all the reactions upstream have to increase in their mm-hmm. rate right so now you have to you have to bring in more fatty acids you have to strip off the electrons the carbons they go through the citric acid cycle and and so on and so forth. Right? So it's
0: kind of the fat tissue that doesn't want you to
3: be fat. Yeah, that's okay. exactly. It's, it's, a it's nice. Guy. It, if
1: you want to call it good fat, it's it's good fat. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Not not to uh, mix with the good fat that we have in avocado. Not right? yeah, yeah. As we said, yeah. the good fat in avocado is a molecule, and we're talking about cells. Yeah, it's
2: the good fat cell. The
0: good fat cell. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There was one other uncoupling mechanism
3: that we wanted to talk about.
2: Yeah, it's the mechanism uh, you study most uh, these days, right? Yeah. It's uh, the creatine futile <laughs> cycle. That's right. That's right. <clears throat> yeah. So uh,
1: it's not an uncoupling mechanism. So mm. that's where I'll have to, I'll just... So uncoupling, what that means is... So nor- a normal cell will... We'll talk about fatty acids. will strip off the electrons and the carbons. Those electrons will go through the electron transport chain. you will generate a proton motor force, Right. And then that will drive, that potential energy will drive the synthesis of mm. ATP, the energy currency of the cells. Okay. What UCP1 does, it allows the protons to go back into the matrix and basically bypasses
2: ATP synthase. Like ATP synthase, it's basically competing with ATP synthase
1: mm-hmm. for the proton gradient.
2: Yeah. On one side, you have the molecule that makes the energy currency of the cell and you can harness the proton gradient yes. for it or UCP1 can just let it uh, let it free pass. Exactly. And so what what uncoupling means is what you've done there,
1: you've uncoupled with UCP1 substrate oxidation, substrate being the fatty acids, oxidation being removal of the uh, electrons yeah. hmm. from ATP synthesis, you've uncoupled those two processes. Mm-hmm. And all of the energy that's stored in the fatty acid, it's never stored anyway in the in ATP you always lose some energy as heat. Mm. But because UCP1 causes the mitochondria to try to maintain its membrane potential, all the upstream reactions increase in their rate, that's where the heat is generated from. UCP1 itself, the protein, is not generating heat.
3: Yeah.
1: It's all of the upstream reactions that are actually that are not 100% efficient. Nothing is 100% efficient. So that's where the heat comes from. Okay, ah. So that's uncoupling. Um, that's one way a cell can generate heat, right? Another way that you can generate heat, and that's what I study, is you can let a cell make the ATP,
3: mm-hmm.
1: but then the ATP is somehow disposed of without doing any work. So-called, it's an ATP sink. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's that's what my lab studies. It's the futile creatine cycle. It's essentially an ATP sink. So the end result is the same thing, like UCP-1. You've used the proton mode of force. Instead of dissipating it directly by UCP1, you've just coupled it to ATP, but then the ATP is disposed of, yep. either directly or indirectly.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's mm-hmm. like filling your bathtub and then taking a bucket and just throwing water on the ground. Basically, exactly.
0: Right. Exactly. And just
2: to make sure that, uh, that the audience understands, we were
0: talking about ATP synthase. Uh, we didn't, I'm not sure, I don't think we explained quite what, oh. what that is. Yeah. I'll just go through the, it's a classic analogy of uh, hydroelectric. Right, where you have a lot of water accumulated on one side and just a little bit of water on the other side, and the water will flow through that big wall that we have in hydroelectrics, and it passes through a turbine that rotates to make energy. That's how hydroelectric works. Uh, and it's basically the same thing inside of the mitochondria, but instead of water, we have protons. Mm-hmm. And um, then what UPC1 would do is that we have that wall, and the water usually goes through the turbine, But UPC1 would give a separate pathway for the water, and the water wouldn't go through the turbine, so it wouldn't have all of the energy that the water could give. We wouldn't have that.
2: Exactly.
1: Yeah, Yeah. that's a very good analogy. Okay. Exactly.
3: Uh,
2: Okay. Very good. So uh, about the creatine creatine futile cycle that you study, um, it also happens in those brown fat cells, right? Exclusively brown and
1: beige cells yeah as that's where we've looked that's where we've seen it um, we don't know that's a very interesting question that we'd like to pursue if other cell types either under physiological conditions or under pathological disease context this cycle might be uh, activated we we don't know but right now we're we're try- the the lab my lab is mainly focused on trying to understand the parts list mm-hmm. all the like if you're making a cake you know, we we need to understand. We know that we can make a cake, but we don't know if we've really optimized the best tasting cake, right? We don't know if we have all of the ingredients uh, that the cell uses to activate uh, the futile creatine cycle.
2: Yeah. So those two uh, mechanisms we talked about, the UCP mechanism and the futile creatine cycle, those are the two main known ways in which brown fat cells waste energy to produce heat, right? Yes, there there have been other there are other mechanisms as well that have been proposed. Other
1: ATP sinks. Okay. Oh. so but I, I would say I don't think I'm being too biased here with our own work. I think the work we've done has it's a lot more developed than these other pathways. The other pathways that have been proposed are calcium cycling mm-hmm. uh, outside the mitochondria, which also uses ATP um, in fat cells. There's some evidence for it, but I think there's still a long way from from demonstrating that this is actually a futile mm. cycle. Um, and there's also lipid cycling. So making lipids and destroying them within a fat cell. So people have said so, so that the
2: inefficiencies that come along the way
1: just waste energy. Exactly. Mm. Also, because you need ATP to build a fat molecule. But then if you break it down, that in theory is an ATP sink as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So there, are, there are other other mechanisms
2: that have been proposed. As I see. Well. Yeah. And mm-hmm. all of these mechanisms, they, I suppose that they are triggered when we need to produce heat, because we don't always need to produce heat. Ah, that, now, so that's a very, that's a very good question. So, so we published this
1: paper uh, this year where we identified the effector proteins, so the proteins that are re- that are required for the cycle. Now what we're working on is understanding how the cycle is regulated and as you say yes this it should be what's known as facultative facultative means that you should be able to turn on and turn off a heat generating mechanism upon demand right you wouldn't it wouldn't make sense to just have this on all the time so that's what i mean by the parts list we're try, we're now identifying new players in this cycle that promote the acute, the rapid activation mm. of the cycle. Uh, yeah. But the uh, these other pathways, it's not known, right? I don't, you know, so that's why I, th- I say that our pathway right now is a little bit more developed because we're starting to put, we're putting the fetal creation cycle within the known characteristics of thermogenesis. And there was, those are two. They're facultative. Like I just said, they have to be turned on rapidly and off rapidly. And they're also adaptive, Meaning that over weeks, days, weeks, months, you see changes in gene expression, right? Proteins increasing that are involved in generating heat, right? Facultative would be the proteins you already have there are just ready to quickly respond, yeah. right? Adaptive, meaning that there are molecular genetic changes, transcriptional changes that occur
2: over uh, longer periods of time. Mm-hmm. these adaptive changes does that mean that if I live in a cold environment the way that my DNA is read and expressed in my fat cells will change over yeah. uh, these weeks yes yes so mm-hmm. I will I will uh, grow more grow more brown fat cells yep. for example yes really yes. The,
1: and the brown fat you'll grow more brown fat cells and the fat cells that you do have will be more active as well
3: yeah hmm
2: By having more UCP-1
1: and... More UCP-1, more CKB. uh, You might have more fat cells in general because, uh, for example, the best way that we know that we can activate brown fat is just cold. So if we go into a cold environment, like you said, but this can cause the progenitor cells, cells that aren't fat cells yet, to give birth to new fat Mm. cells. And so this stimulus of of a cold stimulus also might increase just the number of fat cells you have. And then within the fat cells that you started with, you'll have more uh, proteins like UCP-1 and CKB Mm -hmm. that are involved in the futile creatine cycle.
0: That's amazing. CKB Mm -hmm. being one of the proteins involved
2: in this creatine cycle that uh, uses the ATP. That's right. It's like the last protein, right? So many things happen, and this is what you're looking at in in your lab, all the mechanisms and the switches that happen for CKB to be there and futilely uh, release the energy from the energy currency, ATP. Yeah, that's right.
1: So UCP1 can do it on its own. That's uncoupling. Uh, For the futile creatine cycle, it's a two-enzyme system, actually. There's CKB, which... So ATP synthase, the turbine generates ATP... CKB, what it does is it puts that phosphate, one of the phosphates on ATP. There's three phosphates. It puts one of those phosphates onto a molecule called creatine, and the creatine is now phosphorylated. It's called phosphocreatine. Mm-hmm. Then another enzyme called TNAP takes the phosphocreatine and converts it back to creatine. Mm-hmm. So essentially what you're doing is you have a creatine to phosphocreatine back to creatine. You have this cycle of creatine phosphorylation and dephosphorylation. That's what CKB and TNAP do. And every cycle that you do that, you are using one more molecule of ATP that that ATP synthase generates. What that does is it generates ADP Mm -hmm. that has two phosphates, adenosine diphosphate. And ADP is sensed by ATP synthase to make another... ATP, that uses the proton motive force, electrons flow, and everything upstream increases. Increases. So essentially what you're doing, you're not destroying the ATP directly. This is actually, we think, why it has evolved. You might think, why isn't there an enzyme that just destroys the ATP directly? Well, that would be very detrimental to a cell. Right. You want to actually probably make sure that you only activate the futile creatine cycle if ATP levels are high enough. If they're high enough, they'll be stored in phosphocreatine and that's a that's a very safe way of removing stored energy, right? And you're not really affecting the ATP abundance. Mm-hmm. You're only really destroying the energy, the excess energy that's put onto phosphocreatine.
0: Okay. So let me just uh, let me just put it in, in more lay terms so that people can uh, better understand. In in the human body, energy is used in this currency form that we call ATP. It's just a molecule that has three phosphates three phosphate groups. Now the third phosphate
1: group is the one that is usually used to release energy. Right? So so I'll just stop right there. So actually yeah. this comes back to my point of disequilibrium. Mm-hmm. So people erroneously say that the phosphate, the third phosphate in ATP is a high energy, quote unquote, high energy bond. Yeah. That's actually not where the energy comes from. The energy comes from the fact that ATP is vastly more abundant in the cell than adp
3: Mm -hmm.
1: like ten thousand times more abundant so again there's nothing really special about atp it could have been any other molecule that could have evolved to be the energy currency but it's the fact that atp is held at such much higher levels that it can it's held from disequilibrium and so that it could be used in your turbine analogy right it's like it's the top level of water and adp is super low yeah so that's, that's where the energy actually is
2: coming from, not from that uh, third phase. So mm-hmm. basic chemistry, yeah. if you have a lot of a molecule that can be converted to another molecule, for example, here we have a lot of ATP that yep. could be converted to ADP, mm-hmm. it will readily do so because of the laws of equilibrium. It mm-hmm. will readily turn to ADP. And this is the likeliness of it getting to ADP is what gives it its driving force that's for right. all the processes that happen in the cell. That's,
1: that's right. Yep. hmm
0: Uh, And so, let's imagine there's an ATP with that phosphate. Mm -hmm. Let's say it's uh, an ATP holding a ball. Mm -hmm. And I give that ball to Phil. Phil is creatine. Yep. And it's this process of giving the ball, I suddenly release energy.
1: No. (laughs) No? No. No. Um, You give the ball to Phil. Yeah. And what Phil does is he throws that ball into the fire. (laughs) Right, right. And then that is what's... Because... What you've done, you've just transferred the energy.
3: Right. So you've
1: maintained the energy. Phil still has the ball. Nothing's happened yet. But Phil puts the ball on the fire. <laughs> right. Okay, that's, then... that's the part then that I didn't get. You said there is this other molecule that
0: takes the phosphate from creatine. Yes. The phosphate is still on that molecule. Where does it go?
1: It's just it, it, inorganic phosphate.
0: Ah, it's released as PI. Yes, uh, okay. that's right. I see. I see. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So then I transfer the ball of energy to Phil... Phil takes a ball of energy and throw it away yep. in the fire to make some, so the, make some heat. Yeah. <laughs> throw in the fire, exactly. make some heat, there you go. and I go to take another ball, and we keep doing this. That's right. Okay. That's right. I see. I see. That's really cool.
1: Yeah. And every time you give the ball to Phil, somehow imagine you're talking to the mitochondria. I don't know. We don't have another a third person a here. <laughs> and that person is... Driving more substrate oxidation yeah. every time you give the ball Call the, ball. the supply chain. Yeah. This will give exactly, me more. Exactly. Yeah.
2: <laughs> He's my pusher, my, my phosphate pusher. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay.
0: Now there is uh, this other aspect of your research. Uh, I saw a couple of papers that you sent us as well, uh, where creatine, can, uh, creatine from fat cells uh, can have some involvement in the development of cancer. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about how fat and cancer are related?
1: Yeah, I, I. mean, this is a new area. I don't think much is known. Um, what is known is that uh, individuals that are obese have an increased prevalence of various forms of cancer. How, why that happens? That's uh, that's the sixty-four thousand dollars question. Nobody uh-huh. really understands uh, exactly how that's how that occurs. Whether a uh, very fat cell, you know, a very fat fat cell secretes some sort of molecule or releases, maybe releases fatty acids, and then the cancer cells, the tumors, can use that. That might that's a possibility. Uh, we identified that creatine that's made in the fat, uh, and if there's a neighboring tumor, like in breast cancer. The breast is a very fatty tissue, so if you have a tumor growing there, and if if you have creatine in your fat, somehow that promotes tumor progression. Mm -hmm. And we have no idea what the mechanism is, to Mm. be honest. We just know that it's genetically required. What that means is if we genetically manipulate the genes that allow creatine, the metabolite, to accumulate in a fat cell, if Mm -hmm. we remove the ability of a fat cell to store creatine in its fat, somehow,
2: that decreases uh, tumor progression. The adjacent cancer. Yeah. So you use mice uh, that have that in which you inject breast cancer, and yep. you look at how the breast cancer grows. That's right. And if the the fat cells in the breast of the ma- uh, the mouse uh, cannot secrete creatine, all of a sudden the cancer grows much slower. That's right. And we and we did we did the other so that was one experiment
1: because we have mice in our lab that don't have uh, creatine in their fat, so yeah, tumors in those mice uh, grow much smaller. But also we deleted the if you delete the creatine transporter. So this is a protein that's on the outside of cancer cells that takes up creatine. If you delete the transporter, tumors are also smaller. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, so, so you did all the way. You did, okay, let's go to the fat cells. If we inhibit the fat cells, creation of creatine, you're like, it doesn't worry, the cancer doesn't grow anymore. Yes. Then if that creatine that's outside of the cell supplying the cancer with energy potentially, uh, if the cancer cells cannot uptake that creatine, well, the cancer doesn't grow either. That's right. And so you follow the creatine yes. along and see see what it does and yeah. how it can affect cancer development, uh, cancer progression. That's right. <clears throat> and, and so... What we
1: don't understand is when the creatine comes into the cancer cell. Clearly, it's promoting the proliferation of these cells, but we don't understand how that's mm. happening yet. We don't understand what it's doing. Uh, I'm skeptical that it's just providing energy because you need to you need to have an input of energy for right. creatine to be energetic. Mm. Uh, creatine is, is it's like a chemical capacitor, right? It's a it's a way to store energy. So if you make a lot of ATP, you could store the phosphate onto phosphocreatine under 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 times when you need like a rapid burst uh, of energy. But to do that, if creatine is coming into the cancer cells, you have to invest energy. So in the end, it's going to be net neutral. Yeah, there are so we don't we don't understand the molecular mechanisms. Yeah, but that's something we that's exciting
2: research in 2021 2022 that's right that's right (laughs) very very interesting um there's one last question that i wanted to
0: ask is uh the term creatine and creatine is often used in sports Mm -hmm. people take creatine uh to what get more energy when they're exercising yeah yeah uh can you do you have an idea of how that works in in sports medicine
1: yeah i think i mean there's I mean, hundreds of papers that show that there's a benefit of creatine supplementation for for exercise. And I think what's understood in the field is that if you load up on creatine, the lion's share of the creatine that you ingest from your diet um, will get stored in your muscle, and you'll just the muscle will just generate more phosphocreatine. So mm-hmm. you'll just have more, a bigger pool of phosphocreatine to draw upon under times when you're exercising very vigorously and so if you're bench pressing in the gym and you have more phosphocreatine than the guy next to you you might have that little bit of energy to do one more rep right one more repetition one more bench press which will then give you i guess better gains make you stronger right (laughs) Uh so it's not the creatine itself that's necessarily making you stronger it's Mm -hmm. that it that's the understanding
2: it's giving you that energy to push yourself harder It Gives you that more of that immediate storage of energy that you can use when you're maximum force uh, exercising. That's right.
0: Really cool. Really cool. Your research is amazing. It sounds very very promising. Thank you very much. Uh, Where it can go, what we can discover. It it it, for sure. It's a field. uh, It's an unknown field right now, right? Absolutely. There's a lot to do. And uh, thanks to you, we are advancing on that and finding more and more about that uh, that mechanism. Uh, thank you very much for coming to the podcast. We will put your website, the link to your website, on the show notes so that people can access it and read more about uh, about your your work and everything. Perfect, perfect. And uh, thank you very much for coming. That was yeah, amazing. it was great that thank you made you the effort
2: much. to uh, make your science accessible. Yeah, perfect. Thank you guys for having me. Thank, thank you. you.
0: Thank you for listening to Orders of Magnitude. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a 5 stars rating on Apple Podcast and share the episode with your friends and family. If you would like to give us feedback, you can reach us at ordersofmagnitudepod at gmail.com. We would love to hear your opinions and ideas on the subject that we discussed today. Orders of Magnitude is an original project led by Philippe Carle and Matthias Schultz. The original music was composed by Vincent Elis. Stay tuned for the next episode coming out in two weeks.